You're listening to a very special edition of the Interchange Recharge from the Wigwam Resort in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm your host, David Banmiller, and we're here at day two of the Grid Edge Innovation Summit. I'm looking forward to another day filled with discussions from analysts, researchers, and industry game changers that are working to modernize the grid. Listen in as we bring you insights from sponsors, speakers, and attendees throughout the two-day conference. In episode two, we sit down with transitioning experts in the automotive industry, leading microgrid developers, and distributed generation players. I'm talking with Scott Peaty, Director of Business Development and Head of Grid Services at Sunrun. Hi, Scott. How you doing? So you were on a panel yesterday on grid insecurity. How do you think that discussion went? I thought it went really well. Um, I think that we touched on a lot of topics. You know, some of the major themes that I took out of it was around things that it's largely around what utilities can be doing to encourage more use of DERs uh, behind the meter and grid services programs and aggregations ways you can incorporate vehicles, but then all the other um, devices that are going into residential homes behind the meter. Very utility-centric, utility-focused, which, you know, honestly, I think is where a lot of the attention needs to be anyway. So I thought it was good. And you're head of uh, grid services. So what, what all does that entail and what are some of the challenges you're facing? Sunrun has a lot of customers, over 700,000. Uh, about 47,000 of those have batteries. So my job is to make sure that we are providing ways for our customers with batteries to engage with the grid, try to make a little bit, bit more money with their resource through utility programs. So I spent a lot of my time working with utilities in areas where we've you know, got a lot of customers and um, talking to them about how we can you know, you network those customers' batteries together and, and, and deliver more value to the grid. Are you seeing a lot more batteries out there? Absolutely. Um, we're seeing growth, you know, not only in California, you know, the usual places, but, you know, starting to see growth in Texas, um, a lot of the Northeast, Puerto Rico. So I'm all over the place. What other trends are you seeing as it relates to that? Probably the biggest trend right now is just, and we touched on this a little bit in the panel, is just understanding the trade-off between using your battery for resilience, to keep your light-ons in the home versus dispatching it for grid services to make some more money. I think customers are becoming more interested in that and are being smart and asking more questions about how is my battery being used? Um, and so I think the customer engagement piece for me is front and center and how we, you know, the, the methods that we use to engage with our customers to explain things in ways that, you know, they can understand because they're not having all these you know, office room conversations with the utilities like we are on a regular basis. That's a consistent theme across the board is the consumer education. It's nice to see, though, that they're willing to and that they're getting more knowledgeable about the opportunities, particularly as it relates to battery storage, but energy transition in general. Yeah, and I think this is the beginning of a much bigger conversation because, you know, when we do get to, like, say, vehicle to grid, but then really just sort of looking at the whole house as a resource, batteries are going to be are going to be sort of that first major entry point to start this whole educational experience and campaign. And, you know, we're finding that, you know, customers are very willing to dispatch their batteries, knowing what it's being used for and, and understanding that they are sacrificing some of that for backup. Because in reality, in, at Sunrun, you know, we know like a customer doesn't necessarily need 100% of their battery behind the meter to keep the lights on. I mean, we always guarantee that there's going to be a state of charge reserved if you're enrolled in a grid program, if there are outages. 
but you don't need the whole battery to get through that. You can, you're, you can use a good portion of that battery to make some more money. And I, and I think that's getting customers to understand that is, is really what we're trying to do. And the increase in number of batteries being deployed only helps. Yep. So what are some of the innovations and investments that you guys are doing at Sunrun? On the innovation side, we're spending a lot of time working with basically other companies, vendors of new products, you know, like, like Span. You know, we, we got our partnership with Ford and we're trying to kind of identify those kind of winning game changing products that we can partner with to introduce to our customers and our future customers. So a lot of our work is spent innovating how we, how we take these products, work them into the Sunrun solution and get them eventually installed into, into customers' homes. So yeah, we've got a team of advanced product folks that are just meeting with these vendors, meeting with these OEMs, vetting their products, and then figuring out how it sort of packages into our into our overall solution. And you mentioned something that's consistently come up as a key piece of helping these technologies develop is the partnership. Yep. Yep. And and that's that's key for us because you know, Sunrun, we're not we're not out there building products on our own. We rely on, you know, the expertise that our partners bring. And then we sort of represent our customer. And that, that's, that's, our, that's our role in all of this. Well, Scott, thanks for joining me, uh, giving me your thoughts at the conference. And I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of it. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Day two. Spirits and energy are still high. Interesting discussions being had surrounding automakers' role in the future of EV charging and the importance of partnerships across the board. Let's grab some key speakers and get their thoughts. So I've got Amaya Cardenavis, Research Analyst, EV Charging Infrastructure at Wood McKenzie. Hi, Amaya. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. You've actually been, been pretty busy uh, this summit between fireside chats and, and moderating panels. What have been some of the really interesting takeaways that you've had? Um, the biggest takeaway is that we all need to work together. And uh, the more partnerships we have, the more understanding we have, the more synergy we have amongst all these companies in the automaker space, in the EV charging infrastructure space as well as all the different providers who are supplementing the ecosystem. They all really need to work with each other closely, understand businesses, and uh, deploy infrastructure at scale um, because we need to really accelerate the transition. And you moderated the panel on the manufacturer's role in EV charging solutions. How do you think they're doing? It was the automaker's role in EV charging, which is uh, really essential because they're driving sales up. They're the ones who are leading the transition in terms of bringing vehicles on the roads as well as setting targets. And um, they, they are the ones that are actually developing standards and which other, the whole industry will conform to. So it was really interesting to know about how they're seeing charging infrastructure in the future as, um, mainly about talking about public charging, home charging, as well as um, all these cool technologies, talking about connected cars and how they can be used actually to feed energy back into the grid, which is going to be a big thing because we'll have so many batteries on roads through the vehicles. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in, in the uh, infrastructure deployment? With EV charging, I expect that most charging will happen at home around um, 70 to 80%. Today, it is that number, but it's going to reduce as more EV adopters in the late, later stages are living at, in multi-unit dwellings where it's tougher to get chargers in. So the biggest trend is that access to home charging will go down in the future across the globe. It'll be less steep in uh, how it is in North America, but much more steeper in other parts of the world, such as China or India, where higher urbanization exists. So that's one really key trend that's coming along. Um, the other one is that workplace charging will be essential. When people really start going back to work, we'll see more and more requirement of charging at work, especially to get people who can't charge at home charging at work. 
and uh, building that whole ecosystem around bringing people back to work and allowing them to book their parking spots for charging along with all these other, other amenities that can be offered will be really essential to pull people back in. And what about some of the solutions being offered for really densely populated areas? Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of multi-unit dwellings and in densely packed neighborhoods, we require a lot of uh, load sharing, meaning we need to balance the loads so that the grid isn't stressed too much. And uh, there are a couple of companies in the space who are really trying to do this stuff with leveraging uh, infrastructure installed and uh, balancing out the load profiles by adhering to customer needs. So customer can or EV owner can actually set up the time when, when they need the vehicle to be full and they'll manage charging accordingly rather than just charging your vehicle within one hour and then letting you use it. So rather than that, they'll just slowly charge it, say by 5 a.m. in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning, you'll have your vehicle ready, uh, which really makes a lot of sense. The other thing is that connectivity is a big issue in underground parking lots. A lot of companies are looking at solutions in terms of being able to actually install chargers that may not require connectivity. And uh, there are all these different sort of solutions. We don't know the answer yet, but uh, right now all we know we need to install and deploy. Geographically, are you seeing any areas that are further along or that are doing things right versus others? Yeah, of course. I think China is a leader, massive leader in the space. China has been doing great work. They have deployed at scale. They have a clear advantage in terms of manufacturing costs coming down drastically especially because they've realized economies of scale. Um, the other big region is Western Europe, which is um, really doing great and coming close to home in North America. I feel there are a couple of jurisdictions that need to be pointed out in terms of uh, how they're leading the charge. California, of course, is one. Everyone talks about California. But beyond that, uh, even Florida has seen great adoption of EVs and deployment of infrastructure. As well, in talking about in Canada, we've seen really great stuff happening in terms of adoption of EVs in British Columbia as well as Quebec. Um, so these are like some of the regions that need to be pointed out. Other regions need to really take learnings from them and um, develop their policies accordingly. Anything from the government side of things that, that they could do to help drive it? So right now it's all about funding. Just bringing the cost down is important. And that's what the technology trend looks like, is that when you scale up, you're able to drastically bring down costs. And this is what has happened in China and it's continuing to happen in the United States and Canada. So government funding through the recently passed uh, bills, um, the IRA Inflation Reduction Act, and the uh, funding coming in through the NEVI, that is the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, uh, which is passed like earlier this year. It's a huge amount of money. It's around $5 billion from NEVI and the IRA, as well as pretty large amounts for charging, as well as medium and heavy duty fleets. It's all about the money right now pump, being pumped in from the governments. And hopefully we'll see that really turns to fruition in terms of seeing EV adoption and more EVs on the road. Listen, Maya, I appreciate you, you stopping by and sharing your insight. Perfect. Thanks so much, David. Joined by Kathy Knoop, Manager of EV Stakeholder Solutions at General Motors. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. So you were part of a panel on the automaker's role in EV charging solutions. How did that discussion go? What were some of the kind of the key themes you guys discussed? Well, it was a really good conversation, and it's great to be here at the Woodmac Grid Edge Summit. Because we've got people from solar, we've got utilities here, we've got automakers here, we've got people supplying sort of that whole ecosystem that needs to be put in place to support the charging that folks need when they buy an electric vehicle. Because you think about 80% of the charging is done at home, which is wonderful for homeowners. 
You think about multifamily and apartment dwellers. What is our solution for that? And what is the DC fast charging solution? And then how do utilities fit in all that, whether it's interconnection, managed charging, vehicle to grid, vehicle to home? There's this, this whole combination of where we all need to work together to make this transition to electrified transportation successful. And how easy has that discussion been around kind of the standardization around charging solutions? Well, it's hard. It's hard because there's a multitude of different businesses out there putting forward their solution. And, and naturally, you know, people think their solution is the best solution. So how do we, and especially how do utilities understand how all the different automakers, charging providers, and what have you, have the same level of communication and standards that make this work seamlessly. And I think it started out with a little more disparate solutions, and we're getting there. We're getting standards working with, with SAE and IEEE and getting standards done on the technical side, on the utility side, the grid side, as well as on the automaker side. Things like auto charge or plug and charge, where people can pull up to a public charging station and just plug in and that transaction is seamless. So moving more towards that, that's a future we see in DC fast charging and public charging. And where do you see kind of your biggest challenges? You know, challenges right now, a lot of it's on consumer education, especially the idea of if I buy an electric vehicle, will there be a place for me to charge my electric vehicle? So educating people on that, on how vast the networks are. Um, we provide a My Chevy app, which shows where our charging stations are. But even for somebody who's just thinking about an electric vehicle, can go to somebody like PlugShare, pull up a map of the United States and see how many charging stations there are compared to where you live and where you can go to use that. So there's a lot of tools out there for the public to get a better understanding, but it just sort of has to be put out there, right? And what are some of the things that, that you feel could be done, whether it's commercially or regulatory, to kind of help this initiative? Well, on the utility side, on the investor-owned utility side, we'd certainly like to see public utility commissions educate themselves on the benefits of electric transportation, the benefits to actual ratepayers. Once they, they convert to electric, they're saving money on fuel, on gasoline. The average cost of electricity for a resident comes out to about a dollar to a dollar fifty a gallon gasoline comparison. So customers are saving money. Their electric bill may be going up a little bit, but they're saving money on the other end by switching fuels. So understanding that overall this transition is going to save consumers money is something that needs to be communicated far and wide. Education, once again, comes up as a, as a common theme. It's huge, yeah. So you had mentioned on the panel that, that you had a 30-year career in public <laughs> utilities. So tell me about that, that change or transition for you. So I, I did. I, I started out working with Salt River Project, which is a public municipal utility in the Tempe, Phoenix area in Maricopa County, and worked there for a really long time. In about 2013, I started with working on their electric vehicle program, the the ARRA funding was coming out. The EV project was coming out. So Nissan and General Motors and Tesla, there are three EVs out there. And the Mitsubishi IMEV put in money towards charging infrastructure. So we started getting involved in that. And that grew to having managed charging programs at Salt River Project, customer education programs, something called the EV community so time of use, an EV time of use rate where people would, would get a lower cost 
if they charged off-peak than on-peak, and we had specific time-of-use rates. I left Salt River Project to work at Arizona Public Service, which is an investor-owned utility. And investor-owned utilities look at EVs a little bit differently. They can spend some more money on capital and charging stations. So that was, that was pretty exciting for me to understand the way both utilities were looking at it. And it is interesting because people that I've known for, for many years, even a year, two years ago, who I thought would never be interested in an EV have now started to take a close look at them. Uh, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of EVs that are coming out right now that are really good looking, have all the bells and whistles, and it's just continuing to, to move forward. Yeah, well, there are those. They're the, they're the fantastic, you know, very slick, very fast EVs with bells and whistles. And there's also electric vehicles that are just really good vehicles to have if you want to save money on fuel and maintenance, get your family around. You have basically a full tank of gas every morning when you get up after you plug it in. If you're in a single family home and you have home charging, it's as simple as plugging into a 120 outlet. As long as you're not sharing that outlet with the refrigerator in the garage, you're probably in good shape. You'll have a full charge in the morning. There's EVs out there now in all price points too. So you can find them under $30,000 and you can find them over $100,000. So there's something for everybody. Well, listen, Kathy, I appreciate you uh, stopping by to speak with us. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Thank you. I've got Adam Langton, Energy Services Manager with BMW of North America, LLC, joining me right now. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you were on a, a recently on an interesting panel discussion um, regarding auto manufacturers' role in the EV charging uh, solutions. What were some of your key themes from that discussion? That's a good question. I think one of the key themes is how the auto industry can work together with the utility industry to improve the experience for drivers and also just to really support EV adoption. It's kind of an interesting time for both of our industries. In terms of the automotive industry, we're going through this change as we're moving from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. That's a massive change for our industry. On the other side, utilities are also going through their own changes, getting much more renewable energy, moving to a carbon-free energy system. So both of us are, are going through these changes at the same time. And what's interesting is the electric vehicle gives us a chance to work together to address both of our challenges. Us, in terms of the automotive sector, working with the utility sector can help us get a better experience for customers in terms of getting their infrastructure rolled out, uh, working together to expand the infrastructure that's available to customers in the, in the public sphere. And on our side, we can help the utilities by timing electric vehicles to align with renewable energy. So there's a chance that we can kind of work together to solve our problems. So I think that's really exciting. There's a lot of incentives, obviously, that you're working on for all parties, but there's a lot of moving pieces. How difficult are those discussions along the standardization of charging methods and just really working together and make sure that everybody's aligned? What are the biggest hurdles that you're facing? There's a lot of standards that are already in place. That, and we've done a fair amount of work already getting the cord set to be standardized at both the level two and the DC, the fast charging level. So that's, that's standardized now. There's new communication standards that are starting to roll out that are addressing how do you communicate between a vehicle and a charging station and a utility. We use those different standards with uh, different utilities and we're looking forward to seeing that get more standardized. That'll make it easier to do more sophisticated, smart charging and align the charging with the utility needs. So I think there's more work that needs to be done. At BMW, we're right now working with five utilities. And so we're seeing different solutions with each of those utilities. It's going to take more time and, and more work together to, to iron out all the kinks in that process. I don't have an EV, 
I mean, I've thought about it, but mm-hmm. actually the first time I really became seriously considering getting an EV was with the BMW rollout of your newer models. Uh, I saw the commercial and I thought, you know, wow, that's a, that's a nice looking car. What kind of factors do you consider when developing the cars, the EVs for the consumers? For us at BMW, one of the most important factors is we want the driver to have a BMW experience. The driving experience needs to align with what BMW vehicles have always been about, which is being, it's sporty, it's fun to drive. So that's the number one thing that we've always been focused on. But in terms of EVs, we're also looking at the EV range, making sure that the range is enough for our customers. So we've released three new vehicles, uh, long range BEVs this year that get ranges over 300 miles each. And we think that that's really critical to making sure that a customers will feel comfortable buying an electric vehicle, knowing that it can meet all their driving needs. The vehicle's got to have the range, but you've also got to have charging stations available. And so what we do in that area is we work with Electrify America to offer our drivers a two-year subscription to the Electrify America infrastructure network so they can charge at any of those fast charging stations. So that, that gives them more comfort as well. So it's, it's the vehicle, but also putting these services around the vehicle that make sure that EV drivers, and most of them are, are new to EVs when they're uh, at this point still, that they're comfortable and that they're, they know that it can meet their needs. And when the consumers are looking for, for an EV and they come to BMW, what are some of the key items that either they're, they're in there looking for or some of the concerns that they raise through the buying process? So one of the key things is, obviously, how am I going to be able to charge? And the first part of that is, well, how do you charge at home? Working with them on a solution there. So the dealers work with them to help them understand what the charging options are at home, how they can get those installed, what it means for them to be able to do that. So that's, that's the first thing. And then um, away from home, obviously, I mentioned the Electrify America network. We also work with EVgo as well. So we, we have opportunities for them to charge with EVgo as well. Those two are probably the most important for people coming new to the vehicle. But I think we're also, what we're seeing now is more drivers, instead of being looking at this of just saying, I want an EV and I'm only looking at EVs, drivers are now saying, I want an EV, but I want to have the right experience. I want it to be comfortable. I want it to handle well. I want it to be a, a fun driving experience. So we're seeing that as well. The consumer is changing a lot is more as we move into more of uh, the, instead of the early adopters, but the early majority and toward the majority of, of buyers. Um, they're looking at it as another car experience. And so they're trying to say, how do I have the same experience that I have in my current SUV or sedan? What does that look like in an EV? And I know that the EV revolution or whatever has, has really accelerated over the past several years, but do you have any information on repeat EV buyers uh, of BMWs? Um, that's a good question. So we've been selling electric vehicles since 2014 when we started selling our i3. So we are seeing repeat buyers. I think one of the things that with repeat buyers is they're a little bit more savvy about the range that they need. Um, and they're more savvy about the need for charging stations away from home. What we find is that if somebody is new to EVs, they think they need a lot of charging stations around their community, around wherever they're going to go. And what we find is once they're driving an EV, they find out they don't really need that as much. Home charging meets most of their needs. And there are specific areas where they'll need to charge away from home. They learn where they can, where they can do that and, and manage that. So as somebody is a repeat EV buyer, they're much more savvy about the battery range that they need. That makes it easier for us to work with them because they know exactly what they're going to need to meet their needs. Which brings up a point that has been discussed many times throughout this conference is the education of the consumer. What are you guys doing to help that process? Sure. So, I mean, what we try to do, the dealers try to work with the customer to understand what their their travel needs are, how they're going to use the vehicle. 
It also matters how many vehicles you have in a household. If you have two vehicles in a household, they're much more willing to take that leap into the EV space because they're like, well, I've got another vehicle that's an internal combustion engine, so I could meet all my trips if I needed to. We're seeing that we have to teach them about what it means to charge at home, how that works. We're trying to educate them about that, how to, how to use fast charging stations. A lot of it is um, really just making them comfortable with the range. Are they going to be able to meet all their needs? In the past, we've used tools where we can look at where they're, where they're traveling during a particular week or day and look at the, the range that it takes to get those places and then show that how that compares to the vehicle. Geographically, are you seeing any trends in terms of interest and buying of EVs? I mean, obviously kind of excluding California, maybe the rest of the U.S. where there's interesting stats on that. I guess what we've seen over the past few years is the concentration has been in California, most of the demand. But we're seeing now that that is spreading uh, around the U.S. more. We sell our EVs at all of our dealerships across the U.S. So for us, it's we're, we're encouraging folks in all markets to adopt electric vehicles. I don't know that we're seeing any uh, major trends other than moving away from California and moving more toward across the country and in, in all large metro areas. We're seeing a lot of demand. Are there any states in particular that you're finding are maybe a little bit behind on the EV adoption and maybe some of the things that you're doing to help bring that about? Yeah. So the states that have been ahead are, are, were California, the West Coast, and the Northeast. Other areas have been behind that, uh, the curve a little bit on this. What we see for the states that are behind the curve is that they've invested less in infrastructure and they often don't have state incentives either for getting a home charging station or a vehicle. So some states have, in addition to the federal tax credit, states in the Northeast and on the West Coast have incentives um, for purchasing the vehicle at the state level. Those help a lot. Um, I think what we'll see happen now, though, is that uh, the infrastructure bill that was passed last fall puts a lot of money into infrastructure and uh, is distributing that around to, to states that did not have a lot of that before. So we're going to see a lot more infrastructure um, rolling out in those states. The federal government asked for plans from each of the states for their money in September, and they've been reviewing and approving those plans. So that's going to start growing more of that infrastructure. That will tackle that piece of it. And then I think the other thing that those states should work on is working with their utilities to get the utilities ready to install infrastructure at the homes. And that part of it is just supporting people, answering their questions, uh, making sure they understand what that infrastructure means when you install it in your home, but also providing incentives. The incentives are helpful for getting people to get a charging station at home and then just making the experience more affordable. Yeah, having a very supportive regulatory environment to help uh, push these things forward. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think we're we're seeing that grow outside of the coast now. Well, Adam, listen, this has been an insightful discussion. I, I appreciate you stopping by. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm joined by Ken Schisler, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Sea Power Energy Management. Hi, Ken. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you. Uh, so Sea Power is a sponsor uh, of this summit. How important do you think it is for companies to sponsor these types of events to further the discussions going forward? It's very important, actually. I mean, there's this, first of all, the innovation that's occurring is mind-blowing speed, but policy doesn't move at mind-blowing speed. <laughs> it's the opposite. And conversations here, sort of, it's the bleeding edge of where we need to be in terms of like being able to try to have, have market rules, et cetera, catch up to the technology. So it's been, this, this conference is great for that sort of mix of forward-looking technology conversation as well as a policy conversation. So tell me a little bit about Power and your work there. Okay, well, we are the largest 
aggregator of distributed energy resources in North America. What we do is we take customers' load flexibility. So this could be demand response, it could be storage or renewable resources behind a meter solar or, or other fuel cells. And then we help those customers monetize them in the wholesale markets, as well as achieve whatever reliability or resiliency goals that they and maybe their utility have. And we do this um, uh, in most of the U.S. wholesale markets, as well as in areas that aren't served by uh, wholesale markets. And you're part of a panel that's that's coming up here in a little bit on kind of necessary regulatory reforms to help unleash DR flexible capacity. What are some of the key points that you want to make during that discussion? One point I want to make is that this resource is really big. I mean, it's we have a Saudi Arabia of opportunity in terms of load flexibility. And we also want to make sure that we're getting the, the benefits, the full benefits of the uh, energy revolution with more distributed resources. But there are challenges. There's Saudi Arabia of, of resource capability, but getting that resource developed has some practical challenges. For, for example, access to data, overcoming some of the, you know, maybe protectionist interests that some utilities have, and, and also respecting the jurisdiction of state regulators. These are important questions that we have to resolve, all the while, you know, making sure that we create a system that's highly reliable. We don't want a distributed energy system to look like gridlock in traffic. We need the system to work well. We need to protect reliability and make it affordable, but we need to overcome a bunch of barriers. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the capacity, the Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. of capacity. Without the data, the technology supporting it. Or the just, carbon. Or, or, yeah, <laughs> you're just going to end up with wasted or unutilized capacity. That's right. So, I mean, think about a even you know, low tech, even like a, an, an industrial customer operates their business to meet their clients' needs. It is a small stretch for them to arrange their business so that they can stage production and maybe have some inventory at different parts of that production that enables them to turn equipment on or off. Well, they don't have a reason to do that unless you give them an opportunity to participate in a grid program. Well, now with them participating in the grid program, they can provide those ancillary services to the grid that frees up other types of resources or can be the, the source that balances wind or solar when the wind isn't blowing or, or uh, the sun's not shining. So they're, they're very important balancing resources and they're everywhere. We just need to figure out how to get, you know, get more of them to market. So what are some of the positive trends that you're seeing to help with the efficient use of that capacity? Well, customers are open to it, and we're seeing an evolution of thinking about the way we charge for energy. You know, the way utilities, I should say, uh, charge for energy. They're seeing ahead that times are changing and that customers are going to want these distributed energy resources. There is a tendency to protect rate base if you're a utility. It's important for them, to their, for their shareholders, to protect rate base. And as, you know, in the, the old world of, well, let's try to prevent that cogen from developing because we're going to lose that load, those times are, are in the past. These resources are coming, electrical vehicle charging needs are coming and utilities are much are thinking much more broadly about how to properly charge and when you have that can have that conversation you can begin to think about how do you open up opportunities for more of our resources and given your role uh regulatory affairs mm-hmm. how are you finding that environment i mean with the initiatives moving forward what is being done maybe what needs to be done well, there's a lot of work to do. I think most regulators want to do the right thing, just like every other government agency. They're taxed for resources, and it's it's hard to know exactly what the future looks like. You know, one of the things that I think is positive about 
what we're talking about today is I think we're talking about no regrets type decisions that regulators can make, decisions that are not going to involve a billion dollar commitment, but decisions that can move the needle in terms of bringing more resources to the table. So I really appreciate the opportunity that Woodmet presents here to be able to talk about, you know, how we can make those market reforms and rules reforms to develop more of these resources. And I mean, across the board, there's no argument that there's support at not only the government level, but the consumer level as well to help get some of these initiatives put in place. I agree. And again, utilities have a, serve an important role. Traditionally, they've been a barrier, but I, I think most utilities are coming to the place where they know they need they need to figure out a way to embrace these resources to help them solve their problems as well. And starting with the no regret decisions really kind of helps. Yes. Well, Ken, listen, I appreciate you uh, you coming on the show and appreciate your sponsorship oh, uh, for welcome. the event. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. I will. Thank you very much. Well, another insightful day on the agenda. Uh, just about to break for lunch. I'll see who else I can grab to uh, join me afterwards. I'm joined by Anna Siefkin, Commercialization Executive at the Office of Technology Transitions at the U.S. Department of Energy. Welcome. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your work at the uh, Office of Technology Transitions. So I work as a commercialization executive, uh, which is sort of a newer role within the department. And what we really do is bridge across the entire agency. So if a technology is coming out of a particular office or a national lab, it might be at a university or through a partner, we actually help shepherd it through because it's difficult sometimes to navigate the department. And so we serve in this role of making sure that, you know, if someone creates a widget, an idea, or a solution, that it actually has a, a place to go. So it's sort of developing the market, making sure that the, all of the actors are playing their roles, and that at the end we have a successful product or service or solution that's going to address the urgent nature of climate change and energy reduction, carbon reduction. I assume you guys are pretty busy then these days with the, the energy extremely transition. Extremely busy, extremely busy. So we, we're in the process of standing up different parts of the department. So with the recent legislation, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and several of the others, there's this amount of funding that's sort of unprecedented. The interesting thing about it is the government's role has always been to do the R&D part, but now we're getting much more into the deployment and demonstration part as well, because we've, we've seen that although industry's role is to pick up these technologies and move them into the marketplace, there is a role for the government in doing that. And so we're very, very interested, and that's why we have our new Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. The Loans Program Office has new funding, and that's why our role has become so much more robust. How are you seeing the investment climate these days? You know, it's interesting. I've been working in this space for so long, and I remember back at a time when people really couldn't understand how to make that upfront capital investment, whether it was in the built environment or in some other clean energy technology, a startup, for example. But what I've seen in the past few years, not only in this role, but in previous roles, is that there is more funding available sort of out in the, in the universe. There's more venture that's interested. There's more capital available, even from people who want to work on these projects together. So there's industry that gets involved. So I'm seeing there's an uptick, but it's never quite enough. It's never fast enough. And actually, I'll say it's not patient enough. It's very difficult to have a technology in an energy area. These things take a long time. So we need more money, sort of acceleration of the unlocking of money, but then we also need it to be patient enough for these technologies to move forward because sometimes it takes 10 years 
That also talks to the critical role of partnerships in developing these. Absolutely. In thinking a lot about the conference, um, partnerships has been an ongoing theme because uh, you don't want to create something that doesn't have a market. You want your stakeholders, your investors to actually be interested and understand and have something that's de-risked, um, which is a critical thing, right? So investors are not going to make an investment in a particular technology unless they think that their uh, stakeholders are all going to be okay with it, kind of on the investment side of the house. So you have to make these technologies pencil. That's the part of the investment that I think is coming together more quickly. I mean, it's, it's similar to what happened to solar, however, 20, 20 years ago, where solar was so expensive. So now the costs have come down, and the ability to deploy solar has been more sophisticated and easier. So now we have all these enabling technologies that keep feeding in, and we're seeing the same thing happen in long-duration energy storage and some of the other key technology areas. Hydrogen is a, a big topic right now. There's a lot of interest in that, and all of that has to do with hydrogen hubs and partnership. So can't do it without those partners out in industry, stakeholders, municipalities, cities, et cetera. And given the level of uh, government support right now for the energy transition, with, like you said, the IRA, what's the overall enthusiasm within the Department of, of Energy? Well, it's at, um, I would say, unprecedented levels of you know, daily excitement. Uh, for many of us who have been working in energy and energy transition, clean energy for a really long time, this is sort of the perfect balance between having funding available, having legislation and policy behind it, having an administration that's supporting it, and having the uptake at the state level, at the local level. I think uh, it's a really good time to be working at the department, and there's a lot of jobs open. So if people are interested, they should definitely try to apply. Yeah, we were talking about that yesterday. Is the uh, enthusiasm around the younger generation and entering into the space is, is at unprecedented levels? It really is, um, and there's a place for everyone. What we're doing now in terms of like really looking at workforce development, particularly as we focus on reshoring manufacturing in the United States, there's a lot of areas like my home in Pittsburgh uh, where there are people who are really interested in getting involved, and it doesn't necessarily require the highest levels of education. There's going to be a role in this economy for everyone. Well, Anna, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and speaking with us today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Absolutely. It's great to be here, and uh, have a great rest of your day. I'm with Trudy Wang, VP of Product at Gila Technologies. Trudy, welcome. Hi. So you were, uh, you were on a panel from IRA to RNG, charting the path of innovation for microgrids. How was that discussion? I think for me, it was enlightening in the sense that I was seeing across the room an agreement that the IRA is going to provide huge tailwinds to companies like ours. At the same time, we don't know how it's going to hit the road yet, and we're waiting to see that. We're all not trying to read too many tea leaves and still carrying on business as usual, but hoping that barrier to entry for LMI communities, for um, sectors that are hard to decarbonize, right, it'll be a lot easier to gain access to that funding. Because like traditionally, what I mentioned on the panel was that the ITC tax credit has usually gone to the companies with the biggest legal team. And uh, I want to see that barrier entry get much lower for the LMI communities, just so that not just from a purely social equity standpoint, but the fact that we cannot fix climate change without climate justice. And I think that's a really important message to get across. I think the Biden administration is basically seeing that writing on the wall. But again, it devils in the details, right? Like, uh, I live in California. Is How is PG&E going to give access to me as a resident there? 
access to the IRA funding that's coming down the road. The IRA has come up a number of times uh, in these discussions. It's obviously a, a big positive. And I, you said it's still early, but you expect a lot of tailwinds uh, from that. What are some of the things that, that you feel are going to really benefit your company? Yeah, so uh, Hala actually got acquired by Kohler beginning of this year, right? So almost a year now. The reason for that is a lot of big companies are going beyond ESG. They really do care about their legacy and having an impact. Uh, Kohler's measuring scope one, scope two, scope three now, right? And they want to solve the hardest problem, which is like the hard to decarbonize sectors, heavy industry. So where the IRA will play a huge role are those technologies that are not quite ready to go prime time. So solar has been commoditized. Batteries is near there, right? But things like uh, hydrogen fields that are using novel field technologies, right? Those will need to have the IRA funding behind them to, to really accelerate that deployment to then go after that last 20%. Because 80% of our electric load can be easily, or not easily, but can be decarbonized uh, at a cost competitive standpoint now. Going back to the acquisition, Halo was acquired because we basically are agnostic to the technology. So we take legacy technologies, we bring new technologies like hydrogen, we of course do batteries and solars, and we make them all play together, right? And then as our use cases evolve, as, as we go from your old school tariffs, demand response programs, and then to more forward thinking, like for 2222 rulings that are going to enable more VPPs to play, right? That incentive alignment, I'm hoping is going above and beyond the IRA, but it will need to happen. Then those new technologies at the IRA is a tailwind behind. We'll seamlessly, more seamlessly integrate, I think. But again, incentive alignment plus the IRA, I think are the two big things I would love to see happen. And I think there's an agreement in, in this whole conference. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on how the microgrid can help with uh, overall grid congestion going forward? A lot of the discussions this, in this conference have been about the IRA and the national, the U.S. grid, right? But I would say that a lot of the utilities, for different reasons, right, they're seeing that upgrading their lines or non-existent lines in, in the case of emerging markets, right, is, is a challenge, right? It's either in, in the U.S. it's more of a jurisdictional challenge, right? Like there's so much regulation to, to bring in more solar because you can't build lines anywhere, right? And so where we're a lot of utilities are falling into like non-wires alternatives now, right? They're thinking about microgrids. And, and so that means that instead of building up transmission lines to handle higher capacity, how can we make these behind the meter resources intelligent and cooperative and collaborate to reduce that demand at that congestion point? So again, going back to what happened at ERCOT almost two years ago now, I would say, ERCOT exposed those locational modular prices to all their users, but those users couldn't respond. They weren't, they weren't uh, empowered with that intelligence behind the meter, right? And so if you start to think about all these users grouping together, cooperating and becoming microgrids, cooperating with CNI facilities, right, and then becoming smart cities, right, you can start to think about those as intelligent nodes on the grid that can reduce those congestion points, bring back down that price, and then you won't need that TND upgrade that the utilities are either fighting regulation against or, again, in the case of emerging markets, there is no grid, right? Yeah, helping with the efficient use of the overall grid. Exactly. And then bringing down the prices yeah. uh, in conjunction with that. Yeah. So basically a more dynamic transactive grid where your baseline doesn't have to be flat anymore, balancing demand side and generation side with a much more flexible demand side. What do you see utilities doing in that regard? I mean, what are, what's some of the momentum behind the initiatives to help balance that load across the grid and, and reduce the congestion? I would say that... Uh, a lot of utilities right now are worried about 
climate impacts, right? And it depends on which state you're in. <laughs> so on the on the East Coast, there's a lot of concern about floods, right? And then on the where I'm from, California, there's a lot of concern about wildfires and drought and then heat waves because that also increases your demand on the grid, right? And so those two use cases are huge concerns now. And a lot of utilities are thinking about how to make their grid more resilient to that. But at the same time, how do you then turn these nodes into dispatchable resources? Like when I say nodes, I mean intelligent microgrids or smart cities or virtual power plants, right? So like, how do you, how do you make them the new resource in the grid so that instead of thinking of the duck curve as a, as a bug, think of it as a new feature of the new grid, <laughs> right? And then you now have a new tool in your belt, which is the demand side that can respond. But again, the utilities need to think about programs and incentivize that and stop this patchwork of NEM tariffs and fighting with solar companies, right? Again, it's about stakeholder alignment and also incentive alignment for the solar companies, for the renewables companies, for the utilities, and then for end users. And Heal is a sponsor of this summit. How important do you think it is for that type of sponsorship to help with these summits to get the message out there? I actually think that's a it's a pretty critical thing to do because it shows that companies like ours and our parent company, Cola, right? We are serious about bringing stakeholders to the table and then working with Wood McKenzie. And again, I mentioned I'm an interchange junkie, so it's, it's an honor to be here. I think like the leadership, partly it's sponsorship, but partly it's like getting, getting our voices out there, right? And getting heard by the correct stakeholders, right? And this is what excited me about this conference is all the correct stakeholders were here, right? And so, yes, the IR is great for like the funding, tailwind, et cetera, but it can't happen without the right stakeholders coming together and thinking about now how do we incentivize this, right? So like, for example, right after my talk, solar companies and utilities are coming to me to talk about how to work together. And I think that's going to be really important because we've gone from a startup, right, doing pilots to now having a big parent company, right, who can sponsor events like this, help sponsor events like this. And now we're like, thinking about, okay, we don't want to do pilots anymore. We need to make things not just for Halo's benefit, right, but for like fixing climate change, fixing the energy grid. We need to take our piloted microgrids or piloted CNIs facilities into production at a scalable level, not just in the U.S., but across the world. It's been nice talking with everybody here because it, it, there's a really positive feeling behind just the environment right now that there are a lot of tailwinds that maybe weren't even there just just 12 or 18 months ago but the support that's being displayed whether it's consumer wise commercial wise government wise everybody kind of has that little bit of a extra spring in their step if you will just moving into 2023 with a lot of opportunity absolutely and what i'm also seeing which is really great to see is like a lot of institutes that i would have used to cast away as um, think tanks right so, uh, or, or people who do pure R&D, right? So like DOE's been here. I, I saw DOE here, RMI's here, right? They are now hands-on. They're getting involved with utilities, working on solutions, right? In the solution space. Kayla itself, we're working with uh, campuses, academic campuses who want to convert actual campuses into microgrids, like UC Berkeley is an example, right? And they're not talking about just like living labs anymore. They're talking about converting the entire campus. And that's very exciting for me because having come from academia and not wanting to go back in, because I wanted to make that impact, right? I'm seeing it, that, that sea change, which is fantastic. Well, Trudy, listen, thanks for, for joining us and I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Absolutely. This is a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> well, that wraps up the Grid Edge Innovation Summit here in Phoenix, Arizona. It was great to be able to get the industry together in one place here at the Wigwam Resort. 
Lots of planes to catch, including myself. But don't worry, stay tuned for a recap on the summit coming to you tomorrow, which will include bonus interviews and some of the best bits of the conference. See you then.